Radio Mano Papachango. Hey Chris, Dylan here. I'm from Northeast Ohio. Currently working out. It is 10:40 on a Tuesday night. Just did a yoga class before this. Meditate after this, and then probably go home and smoke, and then wake up tomorrow, go to school, do it all over again. Days consist mostly of working out, going to school, reading, meditating, going to work on weekends. It's a good life, though. I like what I do, and. Then get a lot of cool opportunities and I get to choose where I want to go and I get to listen to what I want to listen and I get to listen to cool things like your podcast. If I could just send anything out there, it would be to send love to everyone. You guys give me strength. Chris, you give me strength. And I would love to just send that strength back out there. Thank you. Hey, all you groovy tangent gentilists. This is old man Jim from northern Minnesota. Sitting in a tree watching the critters do their thing, waiting for something tasty to come by. This podcast, I think, is uh, one of those filters in life where you get to meet some pretty cool people. You guys, young folks, I admire you. You think. You care. It's hard. It's fucking hard for you guys. I've been lucky. I've been able to travel and work in the world. It's important. It changes you. Get out there and do it if you can. We need people just like you. Okay, hang in there, man. Salute. Hi, Chris. This is Ivana sending greetings from Ljubljana, Slovenia. I was born and raised in Belgrade, Serbia, and I lived in San Francisco for 10 years before moving back to Europe. Uh, thank you for your podcast. It helps me stay in touch with my Californian self. Thank you, Dylan, old man, Jim, and Ivana, and everyone else who sent in an intro to intro at tangentiallyspeaking.com. Try to keep them under 30 seconds or so. And, uh, you know, no need to thank me for anything. Just say hi to your fellow tangentialistas and tell us what you're doing and who you are and all that. Under 30 seconds, of course. This episode is brought to you by Lilo. Let me talk to you about Lilo. If you read Sex at Dawn, you know that a big part of the argument that we were making is that women are every bit as oriented toward erotic pleasure as men are, and uh, maybe even more so. After all, the clitoris is the only organ in the human body whose only function appears to be the creation of pleasure. Think about it. That's pretty unusual, pretty interesting feature of uh, female anatomy. Women are capable of multiple orgasms. Men aren't, uh, generally speaking. And, you know, I've looked into this whole tantric multiple orgasm, separating orgasm from ejaculation, all that kind of stuff. And I got to say that it seems to me that it's a semantic issue, that what they're talking about is getting to a state of arousal and staying there for a long time so that it almost feels like you're coming for 20 minutes or whatever it is that Sting advocates. Um, 
but it's not actually multiple orgasms. Not to poo-poo it. Uh, I think, uh, you know, ejaculatory control is a very important uh, feature of uh, something to be aspired to by men. Uh, I think there's a certain wisdom in in taking control of any part of your body that you can take control of. Of course, this is something Wim Hof talks about a lot in terms of um, learning to exercise some control over your autonomic uh, responses, your immune response, your heart rate, your um, uh, blood pressure, and so on. Uh, If you can do the same thing with your erections and and your uh, ejaculatory response, uh, I think there's a lot of wisdom in that, not only in terms of being able to uh, engage in sex for longer, which you know, unless you've got some problem with pleasure, uh, making it last longer is kind of a no-brainer, right? Um, but also just in terms of understanding your body better. Um, you know, a lot of things we do sort of bridge that divide between autonomic responses or sort of um, what we could call instinctive behavior and intentional behavior. Falling asleep, for example. Uh, you don't really try to fall asleep. The harder you try, the harder it gets, right? Um, but there is a way of controlling your mind and your body to uh, place yourself in a position where falling asleep is more likely to happen. And this is what we do when we meditate. Um, we're exercising control over aspects of the mind that many people Uh, are taught to believe are impossible to control. Those voices in your head, um, the stress levels, the sort of cyclical um, circuits of of, uh, shame and um, guilt and and negative thinking. Um, Learning to take control of these is so important to getting away from them. And of course, the first step in gaining control is just to observe them, which is really the essence of meditation. Anyway, all this is a way to say that uh, the female body, female humans are capable of all kinds of erotic pleasure uh, that in some ways are unimaginable to men. And there's no shame in that. In fact, there should be no shame in that. In fact, that's something to to marvel at. It always amazes me how people feel so much shame around sexuality. I understand we're taught that. I understand the culture is, uh, most cultures are very intent on teaching that. And I think one of the reasons they're so intent on teaching us that is that our eroticism is this endless source of fascination and pleasure um, which sort of removes a lot of the necessity for the cheaper bullshit versions uh, that are being sold all the time. So, you know, I think there's something very uh, subversive about taking back control of your own sexuality and abandoning shame. I, I think a lot of, you know, the shame exorcism, as Duncan Trussell described it, Um, that I've been oriented toward and fascinated by basically my whole adult life uh, is very political in a way. It's very sort of 
it's it's political because it's about taking back control of your own destiny, your own entertainment. And I'm not just talking about sexuality. I felt the same way um, about psychedelics for years before I got into the research around sexuality. My big thing that I would bore everybody about was the, the, you know, the fascination of psychedelics and travel is the same. These are things that broaden your horizons in ways that uh, make you less likely to swallow the bullshit that your culture is feeding you. Um, and I'm, I'm very much in favor of anything that leads in that direction. Which brings us back to Lilo. Look, Lilo, if you use sex toys or you're interested in sex toys, Lilo is top of the line. Their stuff is elegant. It's very well designed. It's made with the highest quality materials. They're all waterproof. They're all USB rechargeable. Lots of them have apps and stuff. They're super, some of them are super high tech. Some of them just look like sculptures. Beautiful colors. I mean, the whole thing is really nice. So, I mean, whether you're a dude who uh, wants to spice up your solo, what my buddy Kyle said, uh, Pamela Henderson. <laughs> he had a date with Pamela Henderson. Uh, you know, or they've got these sort of fleshlight type things, but they seem to be uh, very... Um, High tech. I, I was just looking at the website. There's this thing. There's an app, and there's there are all these sensors and sonic waves. And I have no idea. I haven't tried it. Uh, I'll uh, when I get back to the states, I'll I'll give it a try and maybe report on it if that's not too disgusting and and bizarre for you, the listeners. Maybe I'll do an online poll or something. Do you want to hear my experience with a masturbatory device? Uh, totally understand if you don't, but. Uh, if you are thinking of, uh, if you're a woman or there's a woman in your life that you would like to uh, give a very special gift to, I would highly recommend Lilo.com, L-E-L-O.com. If you use my name, Chris Ryan, at checkout, you get 15% off any and all full-priced items. All right, moving on. I woke up this morning very early, and I... I Sometimes I wake up and I have a very clear sense of the dream I was having. Today I didn't have a clear sense of the dream, but I had a clear sense of um, like a takeaway lesson that was in the dream. I can't remember any of the details of the dream, but I remember feeling that the lesson was that it, it was like a yin-yang symbol, you know? In the yin-yang symbol, you have the black and the white swirling around each other, swirling around a point that neither of them occupies. And in the largest part of the black shape, there's a white dot, and in the largest part of the white shape, there's a black dot. Each contains the other. That was sort of the feeling I had when I woke up, that everything contains its opposite. Everything requires its opposite. It's sort of a Taoist um, fundamental insight, which is obvious, of course, but it's one of those things that's obvious and yet eternally fascinating and novel when you sort of think about it again or see it played out again. And I guess what I was thinking about, I've got some friends who are going through relationship issues and, um, and I was thinking about their situations and, and my own trajectory in life. And 
it just strikes me how it always seems necessary to be willing to go without in order to have. I don't know how to describe that more clearly. It's like it's like I came to a, a moment in my life when I looked at myself and I realized I had been blaming women for my dissatisfaction in previous relationships where the real issue wasn't that there was anything fundamentally wrong with any of these women. It was that I was comparing that one woman to all women, that I was comparing individual human beings to a sort of idealized version of things. And I didn't do that when I was traveling. I, w- I didn't go to every country and say, well, I'm sure there are better countries than this. Uh, you know, I'm sure there are other places that would fascinate me more. I was just really interested in each place on its own terms. But I, I think that was because I knew I could leave. And when I was looking at relationships, I felt each one was like, well, is this it? Is this the woman I'm going to live the rest of my life with? Is this it forever? And that put me in a position where I was making these very weird and unfair comparisons. And, of course, when you're comparing something real to an ideal, uh, the reality will never uh, live up to the ideal. Um, that's just, you know, it, it's it's totally, you know, it's like, do you like, this food or, you know, do you, would you prefer the option to have any food? I find myself doing the same thing with the radio. Sometimes I'll put on that, I'll push this button for scan and I'll just listen to seven second snippets of every station and just let it go and go and go for hours. It's crazy. Even when it hits a song I like, I don't stop it because I don't know what the next song's going to be. It's very weird. And I think that this sort of impulse toward always opting toward the new and unknown uh, over the known and and perfectly adequate or even fantastic is probably an impulse that I have uh, genetically. I know there are genetic uh, sequences that are uh, associated with novelty-seeking behavior. I imagine I probably have that in spades. But I think it's also something that is being nourished by a culture in which everything goes faster and faster and, you know, our attention spans are getting um, fragmented increasingly by uh, just all this information coming at us so quickly. I think podcasts are one of the only counterweights to that uh, trajectory in the modern world. So I'm happy to be participating in this sort of uh, holding, holding ground, holding the line for, you know, being able to spend some time thinking about a concept and, and circling around it rather than just hit it and bounce on to the next one. But I guess what I was trying to say about relationships, getting back to my original point, is that I came to this realization that the problem wasn't the women, the problem was me, and that I was comparing, you know, an individual woman to all women, and that I wasn't at that point uh, monogamous, and I I didn't want to be monogamous, I didn't think I ever would be monogamous, sexually speaking, not emotionally speaking, and 
that was a big insight for me, kind of comparable to realizing I was gay or bi or whatever. You know, it was an identity level realization. And it came with a lot of trauma because along with that realization about myself was the sense that I will never be truly intimate with a woman again because women don't want a guy like me. Women don't want a guy who loves women as much as I do, strangely, uh, sort of counterintuitive, but that's what I believed. And that hurt. That hurt me a lot because I really do love women and I really did want to have a deeply intimate um, relationships in my life. And I felt that this was going to preclude that unless I was willing to lie about it. And I wasn't willing to lie about it. And so I felt like, okay, that's it. I'm, you know, whatever I was, 32 years old, I'm going to have a series of friends, um, sexual friends, um, but they're not these relationships aren't going to get very deep because each one of these women is going to just stick around until she realizes that I wasn't kidding and I'm not changing my mind and um, that this is really the way I am. <clears throat> and that's going to get old and uh, I'll probably just, you know, get old alone. That willingness to surrender uh, in as a price to be paid for my own self-actualization was necessary to moving to the next level of my own development. And of course, once I got to that next level of my development, I realized that I was wrong and that there were plenty of women who admired that, um, honesty and maturity, but I didn't know that. I couldn't see that. It's like when you climb a mountain, you, you know, the higher you go, the your view keeps changing, the more you can see. I guess that's why we climb mountains, to get that view from uh, up high, which you can't get from down below. But you don't know what you're going to see up there until you get there. And so I think my point is that we don't, we, we can't uh, achieve these higher levels of consciousness until we're willing to let go of the lower levels, until we let go. And letting go means recognizing that you don't know what's going to replace what it is you're abandoning. Um, I often think about relationships, and I think even relationships with the self uh, fall into this metaphor of you know, you're lost at sea, you're desperate, you're, you're, um, you're terrified for your life, you're, you're alone, and you wash up on this little island, and you're so happy, you're so relieved, and you spend some time on that island, and the longer you're there, the more you start to recognize that, you know, there's not much to eat on this island, there's not a lot, of, there's very little fresh water, it's really small, whatever, and you get to a point where you think, well, all right, am I going to swim out there again? Because you can't see any other islands from where you are. You're just on this one island. And you could swim out there and you could get eaten by a shark or you could get tired and die or a storm could kick up. 
you know, or maybe you've got a little dugout canoe or something, but you have no idea whether you're going to find anything better than what you're leaving behind. That's the necessary price of setting out. And you might not, you might not. And everybody who goes through that first heartbreak where your first serious relationship comes to an end, everybody feels that. Everybody feels like I might never find another island. I might be lost at sea for the rest of my life. I've only seen one island. But you're young. Of course you've only seen one island. Once you get out there on the high seas, you realize there are lots of islands around. And you'll wash up on another one and it'll be maybe not better, maybe just different. But you'll you have to put something down before you can pick something up. And if you are unwilling to let go of the current version of yourself that you're stuck in, there's no way you're ever going to upgrade to a better version. That's what my dream was about, at least conceptually. This episode is with a man named Georgi Gusev. Uh, he's a Russian musician that I met in, uh, in Maui. He is uh, an extraordinary guy, as you'll hear. Uh, and this is one of these podcasts that I, I just love it when I get a chance to do a, have a conversation with a musician and he or she plays um, while we're talking, you know, and, and will demonstrate things. And, and it's just fantastic. Anyway, I made a video of uh, Georgi playing, um, which you'll hear in the podcast. But if you'd like to see him playing, you can go to my website, tangentiallyspeaking.com, and you'll see uh, under this episode the video, uh, or at least a link to the video of uh, Georgi playing this, uh, the piece that he plays here. And you can also go to his website. I'll put up all the links to his website where he has much more professionally uh, produced videos of himself. He is uh, essentially like a, sort of a Jimi Hendrix of the cello. He does things with the cello that uh, I guarantee you've never seen anyone else do. Um, there's a a woman who who plays sort of a similarly radical uh, uh, technique. Uh, her name is Zoe Keating. Um, I saw her play once in uh, New Orleans, I think. Fantastic as well. But anyway, Georgi uh, is a, a member of the, the, I think, the Russian Conservancy of Music or Moscow Conservancy. He plays with the Moscow Symphony Orchestra. He's like very uh, high-level classical musician. But then he also plays his own compositions. And um, and he's a radical guy. He's a, you'll hear it. He's a fascinating dude who loves pushing boundaries. Uh, he was, you know, his father wanted him to be a, a professional fighter. Uh, he comes from a, he ended up playing the, the well, he tells the story. I won't, I won't recount the story, but the guy is so incredibly talented that I think he said piano was his first instrument. He sort of picked up the cello uh, later in his late teens or something. And, and now he's a master cellist. Fascinating guy, really interesting, very happy I got a chance to hang out with him and, um, and get to know him a bit, and I'm really glad I get to share that with you. 
So I hope you enjoy this episode with Georgi Gusev. Uh, I'm coming to you from Phuket, Thailand, which is a kind of a horrible place, as I think I mentioned in the last podcast. It's only horrible in the sense that it's full of tourists. Uh, it's a beautiful spot on earth. It's uh, a beautiful little island in the south of Thailand. Water's beautiful around here. Um, but yeah, it's definitely overrun with tourists. I came down here, as I think I mentioned, because I needed some dental work. So I'm getting that done. Uh, Thailand's a great place for that, by the way. A lot of medical tourism here. People fly in from Australia, New Zealand, the States, Europe. Uh, if you've got um, a dental or, or minor medical issue that you need to handle, uh, and you're freaked out by the bills in the U.S., Thailand, you know, maybe consider a trip to Thailand and uh, get it taken care of here. It's, I mean, I'm paying probably about a quarter of what I would pay in the States. So I'm getting two crowns and a few fillings and I had some, I had a tooth that was damaged in martial arts years ago and it's sort of been a chronic issue. And so I'm getting some stuff handled um, and yeah, it's a fraction of the price and very high quality care that I'm receiving. If any of you are interested, you can contact me and I'll put you in touch with this particular dentist. Um, anyway, uh, Phuket is fantastic. Yesterday was uh, Chinese New Year, lots of fireworks going off, lots of loud noises. Um, happy New Year to you if you celebrate the Chinese year. I guess it's the year of the rat. I don't know what that means, if that's the year of, um, you know, ratty ass presidents getting kicked out of office. That would be nice one way or the other. I was interested to see that, uh, there's sort of a brouhaha, uh, right now around Joe Rogan, having said that, uh, he'd probably vote for Bernie and, uh, Bernie then, uh, Bernie's campaign tweeted that. And now all sorts of LGBT activists, are um, up in arms because Joe Rogan apparently uh, made a joke or, or is, I think it wasn't even a joke. I think what the problem is, is that he's argued against trans um, people being allowed to compete in professional athletics um, because they have an unfair advantage. If uh, someone who's born a male transitions to female and then they are allowed to compete in the Olympics, let's say, as a sprinter, they're going to win every sprint because men have an unfair advantage over women. And even if that person has transitioned, um, their thighs don't know that. So he's made that argument. And of course, people are very, some people are very upset about that. And they're saying that Bernie should renounce his endorsement. I never understood that, like renouncing an endorsement. If somebody says, you know, someone says, I'm in favor of you winning, well, how do you make that go away? It's like when people say, oh, I take that back. You can't take it back. You said it. Once it's said, it's said. So Joe Rogan likes Bernie and, and thinks he's the best candidate. That's simply the case. Now, what, if Bernie says, well, I don't care what Joe Rogan says about me, all right, well, whatever. I don't think that matters because Joe says that. He believes that. It's very strange how people are trying to 
exert control over aspects of reality that cannot be controlled. I'm confused by that. You know, I, I also, this, this whole trans issue is confusing. Um, you know, I've spoken to some people who do online, um, you know, sex advice, sex educators of various kinds. And I've asked them if there's any, you know, talk about taboo, because I find taboo to be so fascinating. I've mentioned that essay by Paul Graham several times where he says that taboo is uh, an excellent place to look for um, aspects of contemporary life that in a few generations people will look back and wonder why on earth we believe this nonsense. Um, taboo is a way of preserving nonsense because it makes it impossible or at least very risky to talk about a thing, uh, to bring it out into the light. So 30 years ago, it would have been taboo to, to say, do you think that, you know, people who become priests, maybe a lot of them are pedophiles and or gay, you know, that would have been, you know, you would have been thrown off TV for even mentioning it or radio. There were no podcasts then. Maybe that's part of the problem. Um, but, you know, the you couldn't have said 200 years ago if you'd said, uh, you know, I kind of think black people are equal or white people and they really shouldn't be, you know, prevented from voting and owning land and so on. You would have been kicked out of polite society. That was... Verboten. Um, and so looking at things that would get you kicked out of polite society for merely raising the question is a very good way of finding the rot in, in our current situation. And I think it's interesting how this trans issue um, has become such a, a third rail. You can't touch it. Uh, these people I've, I've spoken to who, who do this sex education, they've said this is the one thing that they can't say. This is the one thing that would get them deplatformed uh, would be to say that they think that kids who feel that they are uh, of the other gender um, should not immediately have access to uh, these sort of puberty blocking drugs and surgery and so on that they should have to wait until they're 18 or, you know, whatever, an, a later age where they're sure about this. Um, they've said that even to even suggest this, to have that opinion would get them kicked off whatever platform they were on. I think that's really interesting uh, and kind of alarming that the the voices of I mean, I understand that, that there, there's a long history of oppression, but I, I feel like the vehemence with which um, these positions are being defended uh, really undermines the movement. Now, of course, I have probably no right to say that, and I'm sure I'll hear from people telling me that I'm a bigoted asshole for even expressing this, but that would just prove my point, wouldn't it? You know, I, I think a kid, a 12, 13, 14-year-old kid who says, uh, you know, I am going to do this or that or the other thing with my life, they should be encouraged, they should be supported, but they should not um, be encouraged or, um, I don't know, they shouldn't be allowed to 
do things that are irrevocable, that are that are permanent, because they should they should be supported, but they should be reminded that they're in a transitional phase of their lives where they're they're likely to change their minds. So I don't think a 13-year-old who says, I want to be a mother, should be encouraged to get pregnant. And similarly, I don't think a 13-year-old who was born a girl who says, you know, I'm going to be a boy, should start taking testosterone supplements or vice versa. Uh, born a boy who says, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm a girl, I don't think they should have their penis surgically removed when they're 13 years old. I think that's a mistake. Um, and I don't think that that's the same thing as saying that those people have no rights, that they shouldn't be supported, that they shouldn't be loved, etc. Of course, I don't hold that position at all. And I also don't think it's unreasonable, as Joe Rogan has said, that someone who's got a man's body, whether that person is a man or not, as defined in their consciousness, and we respect their consciousness, but if this is a woman who happens to be occupying a man's body, I don't think she should be able to compete in UFC fighting in the women's group. Because uh, you're, you know, you're you're in a man's body. Uh, the fact that your consciousness is different or misaligned with that body, I respect that, and I. Uh, agree with the person's assessment of of what gender they feel they are, what their sexual orientation is, and so on. Um, but that doesn't change the fact that they're occupying a body that is characteristic of men or of women. So having said that, I think it's really interesting here in Thailand how the ladyboy... Uh, situation plays out. I was talking to a Thai friend of mine about this recently and and uh, sort of trying to get her understanding of the way it works. And, and she said that uh, it's no big deal. It's in Thai society. If you're a, a little boy and you act like a girl and you want to be a girl, then okay, you're a girl. And people don't really care much about it. And the reason it came up was there's to say uh, thank you. You say I would say kapkun kap as a man, and as a woman you'd say kapkun ka. And uh, there was a lady boy showing me a room in a hotel, and when uh, I said goodbye or something, she said kapkun kap as a man would. And I said to my friend, like, that was strange because I would have thought that she would have used the female terminology. And she said, no, nah, everyone knows she's a boy. And I was like, wait a minute, this is really confusing. And and she, I was like, would she be offended if I had addressed her as a woman or a man? And she said, no, nah, nobody cares. Everybody. In other words, it's like it's this vague sort of undefined um, it doesn't matter. We all know what's going on here. And I feel like that's so much healthier than the way it's playing out in the U.S. with this very um, insistent, 
strict, you know, you've got to use the pronoun that I want you to use. And if it changes next year, you're going to have to change and use that one. And there's all this weird sort of like power tripping going on. And okay, well, I was born a man, but you know, now I've, I've decided I'm a woman. So I get to compete in the men's or in the women's category because what there's a guy this is a weird segue but i have um a google alert set to my name christopher ryan so i see when articles come out or a podcast i recorded a couple of months ago is published so i can you know promote it or whatever um i also see like weird conversations people are having about me on reddit or you know that guy's full of shit his book's been debunked um but there's a guy named christopher ryan recently who apparently was convicted of of raping women and he went he was sentenced to prison he's in prison and in prison he decides he's going to get a sex change he gets the sex change to a woman and now he's suing the prisons because he wants to be moved over to the women's prison now that's the kind of thing that you know, Trump would say is ridiculous. And I would agree. And, and that's the thing. Like there, I, there are, I, I was doing a little series for a while, things I agree with Trump about. I forgot to continue it, but I should continue it. I agree with Trump on that immigration is out of control. I don't think pregnant women should be able to fly into the U.S., have a baby here, and that baby's a U.S. citizen for the rest of his life, and then they can use that baby citizenship to then apply for the whole family to come in. I don't. That's ridiculous. I can't do that. I can't. I can't. You know, fly to uh, Saudi Arabia with my pregnant girlfriend, and suddenly we're all you know living in Saudi Arabia. It doesn't work that way in other countries. Uh, I think reasonable limits on immigration are overdue by far. Um, the fact that the left it turns on each other so quickly makes it very difficult. Um, to sort of come up with reasonable solutions. Anyway, I'm, go I'm going all over the place, and I'm going to just end this here and now. Uh, I think it's great that Joe's endorsed Bernie Sanders, and I hope that Bernie doesn't run away from it the way he did with Cenk Uger. Uh, Cenk Uger's endorsement way back when. Uh, that kind of shit's bullshit. I mean, if somebody likes you, be grateful, say thank you, move on. People start clamoring for you to renounce it. Fuck that. You don't have to renounce it. Somebody likes you. That's great. It doesn't, uh, you, there's, I don't think there's any response required to that other than thank you. Uh, everyone who likes you isn't going to agree with each other. If that's your requirement, you're going to have a very small pool of people who are supporting you. All right. That's enough. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Uh, I will be back with you shortly. I'm probably going to do one of those um, video romas here in Phuket in the next few days. Uh, those are available on my website for supporters of the podcast who support through the website. I'm transitioning away from Patreon uh, for reasons I've discussed 
in previous episodes. Uh, if you support the podcast through Patreon, thank you very much. No need to cancel it or anything if you're comfortable with that. If you know you support other artists and podcasters through Patreon, that's totally fine. Um, but as a, a sort of a incentive to have people transition over or for new supporters, anyone who supports supports the podcast through my website, thatchrisryan.com, um, can view these uh, video romas that I'll do at least once a month and also has free access to all ebooks. Uh, right now there's the tangentially reading ebook and the tangentially talking drugs and consciousness ebook and the tangentially talking sex ebook is coming out within probably within a week now. I think all the formatting's done and uh, that'll be up very soon. So if you're a supporter, you get access to those. That one's interesting. I mean, they're all interesting, but this one, the sex one, uh, has conversations that I had with um, Reed Mahalko, who's a sex educator, Wednesday Martin, who wrote a book called Untrue. Uh, recently just came out about a year ago about uh, um, female sexuality and a lot of the the new science in that area. Uh, I've had her on the podcast a couple times. Um, who else? Asa Akira, fantastic interview with her, porn star extraordinaire. Uh, April White, uh, another amazing uh, porn star. Both of them very, very smart, funny, cool um, Fantastic women. Um, April White's won like every porn star award you can possibly win in the last couple of years. She also runs her own production company and, you know, she has a, a master's in gender studies and she's going to do a PhD and she's a fascinating woman. Um, and then uh, Jana Vrangalova, who is a sex educator based in, in New York City. Uh, who also uh, works with Lilo, I believe. She, Jeanne and I did a talk together at South by Southwest a couple of years ago, sponsored by Lilo. All right, that's enough. Enjoy this podcast with uh, Georgi Gusev. Uh, the cello is a fascinating instrument. Uh, I think you'll agree. Catch you soon. Sound check there. <clears throat> Say hello. One, one. Hello, hello. Okay. Here we go. Here we go. At top of the people populated. Da, da, da. Da, da yet. Is it true that da yet means of course? Da means yes, yet means no. And da yet? Da yet. Da yet means well. Well, so. Oh, it's just like a filler. I have a, a good close friend of mine is, well, he's American, but his mother was Ukrainian, his father was Polish, his grandmother was Russian, they're all war refugees. It's a big, yeah, big mixture of everything. Yeah, and they spoke German around the dinner table because it was the only language mother, father, grandmother spoke. So they spoke. grew up, yeah, all definitely. Yeah. It's interesting, yeah, we, we just uh, spoke with uh, Denis Gassner about his mother, 
that she is actually Ukrainian. And she was hiding this from Denis until he turned 21. Really? So just when his father died, he discovered that his mother is, you know, Ukrainian because he uh, heard her talking in the Ukrainian to somebody for the first time. Mm. And she asked, what kind of language is it? So she told the whole history about the family before the revolution, how they ran out of the uh, Soviet Union, you know, yeah. well, Russia before the Soviet Union happened. So it's pretty interesting uh, experiences and so many uh, roots, you know, of former Russians that you can find all over places now. Yeah. And thanks, you know, to movies about the Tsar, the Nikolai family and all this Anastasia thing, Americans are so curious about that, the, yeah. the Russia in particular. Well, know, now Ru- America's uh-huh. become part of Russia, you know. <laughs> a colony, maybe, of Well, Russia. It's, it's not true completely. <laughs> People think that, but uh, it, it's not like that. It, are it, you you're Russian? You have I'm a Russian, Russian passport? Yes, yes. yes. Oh, okay. The only passport I have is Russian. So I do have a working visa in Italy because I. So we shouldn't talk about politics. Well, we can. Why? If I, I think it's it's normal to talk about politics. I, I, um, I do not agree with people that say that artists should not be, you know, aware of politics. Mm. So the only people in politics can talk about that. I, right. I think it's not true, because everybody we create the history and you know the politics. It's something that we should be involved because it's 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 touches everybody, each of mm. us. So we all have right of vote, and it's very important what you think, especially when you artist that you have access to the stage or access to the certain amount of people. I know you write books mm. and you you get uh, some bestsellers, so it's it's very important to know your vision on certain things. Yeah. Of course, we should be careful because nowadays one word can ruin your career or whatever. So, but yeah, yeah. yeah. Luckily, <clears throat> I I don't have a reputation to mm-hmm. protect. So mm-hmm. I'm, uh, yeah, I'm in a strangely protected place that way. But uh, you, uh, how do you pronounce your name? Georgi. Georgi Gusev. Georgi Gusev, and you are among other things, uh, an incredible cellist. Well, thank you for I, this I heard interview. you play last night, and, uh, you know, I'm not a, a, an expert in music. I, I won't say claim to be uh, any kind of a musical critic or anything like that, but I saw you do things last night I've never seen or heard anyone do with a cello. Oh, I'm glad. I, I hear that uh, often, and, I, you know, I've, of course, been searching this way of playing cello for a long time, because I grew up, I was tr- kind of trained in a very conservative Russian uh, post-Soviet uh, school, which is uh, extremely strong and rigid. And later, that's why I moved to Italy, to Europe, kind of explore a different way on the musical education uh, to, to get to the roots of the classical music, to explore all the range of the possibilities from the prehistorical kind of baroque and whatever happens before the baroque era to nowadays modern times is that when the cello was introduced as an instrument in the baroque period uh, yes well in Bar- baroque period uh, cello modern cello still did not existed by that time there was so many different types of instruments they all were kind of uh, the family of viola da gamba so all for example modern violin viola cello and bass in the baroque era used to have name viola 
but they were separated. Like viola da gamba, it's viola which you hold with your legs because right, gamba didn't have the yes, bass, didn't right? have the bass, the end pin. And viola da braccio is more than violin which you hold with your arms. Uh-huh. There was viola d'amour, so or viola of love that had a very soft sound that composers such as Handel used to put in the score music score to you know for some very romantic beautiful songs mm-hmm. because it had so a really beautiful one. yeah yeah very sensual thing so nowadays we have the separation but right. yeah they, so is the viola de amor is that what we call a viola now viola yeah kind of viola viola d'amor had a little slightly different sound which uh, than the modern viola yeah yeah i have a a friend of a friend who plays um, Baroque mm-hmm. uh, cello. Mm-hmm. And she explained to us that she has to hold it in her legs. Exactly. It's a whole different philosophy on, you know, for example, like writing on the laptop or writing not even with a pen, but with uh, the old style, you know. Mm, with a quill. Yeah, with yeah. a quill. Because it, the way how you produce the, the writing... N- of course, the modern cello, you can create bigger sound, you can play faster, you can play cleaner, you can do all this stuff that you heard in my concert. Mm-hmm. In the Baroque cello, it's just not possible. You will mm-hmm. break all strings because they are softer. They they are gut strings, so right. not metal ones. Right. And the sound doesn't go that straight immediately in strong ones. So it's completely different philosophy of it's making like a, sound. Uh, classical guitar, electric guitar. Yeah, or yeah, or uh, yeah, classical with uh, you know n- nylon strings is totally yeah. different. You probably hear this a lot, but after you played two or three pieces last night, uh, our friend Tao leaned over to me and he said. He's the Jimi Hendrix of the cello. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's it's a big honor uh, to me. Be, I, I did a couple of arrangements of G- Jimi Hendrix songs, and you know, uh, I didn't include uh-huh. them on yesterday concert because it just was not not yeah. the right moment. Which, but, which songs do you play? Uh, well, Purple Haze, uh-huh. I love that one, and uh-huh. I, I did just a lot of. I studied the improvisation on cello, listening concerts. Uh, of Jimmy Hendrix. Oh, really? Absolutely. Oh, yeah. And uh, if you noticed, I actually put a lot of guitar techniques on the cello. Yeah. So the cello playing is very like uh, lined, it's very straight because cello famous for its melody. Mm. But mostly music that I played uh, last night uh, was full of chords and different techniques. And also I, I played one of songs uh, which was composed by a good friend of mine, Australian fingerstyle guitar player. His name is Tommy Emanuel. And it's this song was during the worker thing, the the, on, the only part of the footage which uh, where we we saw the people, the workers right, in the, the mill. And yeah. I was playing this kind of uh, playful song. It's it's composed by uh, Tommy Manuel. It's composed for the six string guitar, with all five fingers on Tommy's right hand involving in the playing. And of course, when you have only one bow instead of five fingers it's quite tricky to reproduce all the sounds of that song but yeah. it's still possible if you use the right technique are you uh, among cellists are you um how can i say this okay as a as a lay person a non-expert watching you last night i was particularly amazed by your work with the bow now are you famous for that or uh, i mean is that something that cellists look at mm-hmm. you know for example with guitarists you might say mm-hmm. uh, someone has very good finger work mm-hmm. their, their right hand is amazing 
or someone else there you know like Jimi hendrix like mm-hmm. he can do things and find notes that other people can't with his left hand uh, actually in, i know what you hendrix's mean in this case it's the yeah, le- left hand uh, yeah. left-handed so that's why we we got uh, here in this property tom soul is left-handed and uh, dennis gasner are both left-handed oh, yeah. so it's crazy <laughs> i wish i could be left-handed cellist but i'm not yeah like would uh, you, like would you like, play like yeah, like R- rafa nadal playing tennis you know yeah. beating everybody because it's just yeah. easier for him uh no actually it's i think it's it's would be quite tricky it's still possible but i do not know any left-handed you know cellist or violinist because just the technique is so particular Mm. and also uh, you need to build completely different instrument because the way that strings uh, uh, placed like you know lower strings on the right and higher strings on the left it really depends on how you build the instrument. So uh, you, you cannot you just, just switch, switch strings it. and yeah. uh, reproduce the same sound. It yeah. will sound completely different and not in a good way. But uh, answering your question, uh, yes, uh, I would say so that, of course, I've, I created a lot of particular techniques and it's actually almost cost me to l- lost my uh, place in the Moscow Conservatory in the last year because I got the big issue with the faculty playing the concerts and creating kind of the sounds that they did not like, they did not accept in the uh, classical way. Mm-hmm. But I just was explaining that I'm trying to find something new because, you know, classical music is... I do not like this term classical because all people think it's something like an old book that you put in the library and it's uh, full of dust and you get there only once in your life to to check some information. But classical music is something living. It's like living organism. It's still growing. It's still creating. We still have so many great composers that in 100 or 200 years, I hope if uh, humanity will still exist, will become classical. Mm -hmm. You know, we have classical Jazz, we have classical rock. So uh, to get the term classical, we don't need hun- even 100 years for that. So, um, And I'm sure that even playing classical music composed by composers such as whatever, Beethoven or, you know, uh, even John Williams now is classical. And mm-hmm. I, I, I made a couple of arrangements of his music from the... Uh, trilogy of about Indiana Jones that I love so much, and mm. John Williams composed the music for that movies, and I, I did some arrangements of uh, for the cello solo as well. Do you ever use looping? Or? Yeah, I do, I do, I do, I do like to um, experiment because especially now the all the electronics grow so fast, so we got so many different types of electric uh, instruments, and of course looping just give you a totally whole range of you you can be one person but sound almost like an orchestra yeah so it's a great thing yeah. and uh, i when there is a possibility to play the sound acoustic thing like we did last night i prefer still to do that because it's kind of you know it's kind of using uh creating tricks in a very simple way but mm. still having the possibility to amaze people it's kind of it's it's more challenging yeah. instead when you have whole range of you know modern possibilities to create crazy sounds and make people freak out just because of that it's a little uh, bit you know more challenging to use just the original uh acoustic instrument do you sometimes think of yourself as a magician um I think so. I used to work with magicians, especially um, when I came for the first time in uh, Los Angeles. 
So I did a couple of shows with a good friend of mine, Magic Castle. Yeah. It was such an experience. Yeah. So what we did, he was showing his card tricks or whatever, and I just was improvising, kind of giving uh, a background, musical background. So whenever he was creating some special effect, I was putting the sound, you know, like in a horror movie. Yeah, so yeah. wait, 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 so yeah. now it's going to happen Something's something. Going, yeah. So it, it, was, it was fun. His it name was, wasn't Jamie, was it? Yes, yes. What what's his last name? Uh, I need to because uh, I had a magician Jamie uh-huh. on this podcast you had, and he invited uh-huh. me to Magic Castle. Uh-huh. I went with uh, friends. And uh, I, I I know Jamie, that that he does he, he does a lot of stuff with uh, I think uh, musicians uh, as well. Yeah, he does. Uh, he specializes in close up magic, yes, like right yes. in front of you. Doing well, the Magic Castle is all about that. I think because you you basically just you know uh, reserve the table and spend a romantic evening and then you have show right in front of you yeah. so it's it's fun and uh, uh, I uh, what, what his name another very young guy uh, Siegfried Tiber if you ever heard about him mm. I work uh, with Siegfried as well for one of the shows and uh, I think he's he he's still working in the Magic Castle mm. And then he he went to to Las Vegas for a couple of shows as well. Anyway, so it's it's a big experience, and um, especially when you take a cello, cello by itself is already magic because when you have almost you know two hundred years old wood made by somebody somewhere mm. with a big history, so many people used to play on it, and you know it's always something to tell. Yeah, why the cello for you? It uh, was a long journey to get to this instrument. You play other instruments. I, I, I do play other instruments, yes. I, I, I started as a pianist in the music, uh, but uh, my father is a former professional boxer. So I have a very weird family. My mother, she's a teacher of arts, and my father used to be a professional boxer. Then uh, when he finished his career, he became a coach. So when I was growing, he was coaching a lot of uh, big, nowadays big boxers. Uh, and uh, he wanted, of course, his son, and I have older brother, his, both his kids to be involved in sports somehow. Mm. So I did a lot of gymnastics, swimming, all this stuff. Where did you grow up? Uh, I grew up in South Urals. It's if you look at the map of Russia, it's uh, towards the Siberia, more east and south on the map. It's exactly close to Mongolia, where Mongolia starts and where we have the border with Mongolia. Mm. And if you look at the geological map, then you see the geological divide of Russia with the Ural Mountains and then Ural River. Such as in the United States, I, I had such big experience driving uh, um, cross-country trip in the United States on a Tesla. Yeah, and it, it was kind of the challenge uh, which we did with friends. So I wanted to prove that it's possible to drive cross-country trip on the Tesla. Yeah. Um, uh, 3S model and uh, through almost all states. It took like two months for me mm. to do that because I've been driving with a cello and playing concerts. So it was not just, you know, a tourist trip for fun, but it was work, partly work, partly fun. Well, I hope Elon Musk gave you the Tesla. Uh, well, no, a friend of mine gave me Tesla, but we, <laughs> we, we wrote uh, to Elon Musk a uh, kind of review and uh, yeah, got, got some, 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 some uh, interesting uh, answer oh, on good. this. Yeah. Good. Yeah. 
<laughs> Do you want to tell me the answer, or is that? It was, uh, they said great, great guy. No, no. It's, oh, he was uh, happy. He, he, he was happy. He yeah, but it was yeah, it was it was not something commercial just for yeah. you know we did for fun. Yeah. That's cool. So you're on tour with you, the cello, and a friend in the Tesla? Uh, yeah, and a friend at Tesla, who was the owner of the Tesla, of oh, course. Right. It would be quite tricky to just give me this car and say, okay, Georgi, I'll see oh. you in two months, and Don't you will tell me how, how it goes. Yeah. No, he was with me, but uh, yeah, we, we actually wanted just to see, first of all, how it works in terms of, because when you have Tesla in California, it's one experience. Mm. But when you need to go from whatever, San Diego to New York, it's a different experience. Right. Nebraska. Uh, there are some, some states, yeah, I remember in, in Texas, uh, there are some big stretches, and that's particular motor that we dro drove uh, had a uh, 300 20 miles of the battery charge. I know that the new, this new kind of uh, Blade Runner track, track that, that yeah. did it's almost 500 miles, but still challenging. Yeah. So, did you, you run out of uh, charge? We, we 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 had one stretch here when we ran almost out of the charger, but hopefully it nothing happened that we had to call anybody to get us out of the <laughs> nowhere back. yes yeah. yes yeah. no actually when you predict so the map and they they have a lot of charges around the country yeah yeah so you were saying your father <clears throat> wanted you to be an athlete you and your wanted brother. me to be an athlete yes and my brother but uh, when i turned 13 i came to my father and said dad i don't want to be a, involved in box particularly because i decided to pursue with art so i need my arms you know i don't want to, to hurt fingers, myself my yeah. fingers even yet i have two broken bones on mm. my right hand that was street fight a long time ago in in palermo in sicily and kind of my ability saved my life because there was somebody who wanted to steal my cello and he was oh, armed oh. so i i used my ability i hurt myself but yeah. i kept my cello and uh say probably my, myself yes yes oh, so anyway, um, so when I came to my father, I was 13, I said that I don't want to pursue with the sports, I want to become an artist. I still had no idea what I want to be exactly. Mm. So of course he was very upset. Uh, he didn't talk to me about over a year because it was big drama for him because my older brother said the same and he became an actor. Really? Then when I came years later, I said, you know, it was big, big, chance. yeah, big, 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 big fault for him as a as a coach of his own uh, kids. Anyway, so I went to Moscow to study uh, painting. I wanted to be an, became an artist to be a painter or whatever comes from it. But there was a very difficult, tough period. So it was right after Perestroika, and you know, being in arts was the last thing your parents or yourself could. Yeah, could you know? People are just trying to survive. Exactly. So yeah. people was were trying to do to make money somehow because there was uh, more than half of manufacturers turned down, closed down. So there was biggest uh, unoccupation in the country. A lot of drugs, alcohol came out, prostitution. So it was mm. terrible period. And I remember I moved to Moscow from my hometown, which is uh, quite far away. So by that time, uh, uh, I couldn't afford to get a plane, airplane. So I took a train and, and there is all two days uh, of a train from my, my hometown to Moscow. 
So in two days I came to Moscow and my my brother, oldest brother, already been there studying uh, the acting in the acting school. And I came to him and I tried to get to the painting school, but I didn't get there. So across the street was a musical school. And actually the oldest and the most famous Russian music school called uh, uh, School of... Uh, Gnesin school, Gnesin music school. There were five sisters in the Russian Empire, and they were coming from extremely wealthy family. And all five sisters were very well educated, especially in musical, in the music. So they decided to form school for young uh, girls. In the beginning, it was uh, a ladies' school only for girls. But later, during the Soviet Union, they 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 opened its for everybody, it became uh, the biggest and the most uh, famous Russian music school in, in the country. So I passed the exam and became a musician. How, how did you pass the exam? Uh, my mother, she taught me how to play piano. Oh. And when I was a kid, I started to compose music. So piano was always in the house and I played oh. all the days long. So I, I was very uh, fluid in the piano. So probably that's how you know i myself discovered this talent but never uh tried to insist myself to 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 pursue this career you know with music and only when somebody else noticed that and said okay Georgi, you're good enough to to get in the best music school i said well that must be a right choice a right mm. chance so I so you didn't know that you had so much talent you, you were pursuing you wanted to be an actor it was something something you know something natural when you you just you know you have a voice and you 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 just sing i i i watched this uh last documentary about luciano pavarotti just in the last my last trip playing uh five days ago when i was flying overseas and luciano said the same the same story that he always w used to sing but he never had this idea to become a singer. Right. Before somebody came to him and said, Luciano, it's your gift. You should do that. Yeah. You should study. You, sh you should go further. You cannot just, you know, have it. And mm -hmm. So I think it's very important when you have somebody such as mentor, then not just teach you, but somebody who can discover and encourage you to work more seriously on what you have. And that's all about mentorship. So how old are you? I'm 32 now. Yeah. So yeah. you're you're still very early in your career. Well, yeah, uh, yeah. Mm, uh, I <laughs> I don't know if it's early or not, but it's always interesting because when you're younger, of course, it's a lot of challenge because you're surrounded by so many younger and even more talented, more gifted people. I remember when I used to study in Moscow Conservatory, I was always uh, not jealous, I don't have any jealousy, but scared that how will be I able to compete with all these guys because Moscow Conservatory is mm. the biggest and the most uh, highest uh, level uh, musical education in the world. And studying there, it's already a challenge because you, you are surrounded by these huge talents and yeah. every every one of them is a, a name. But later when you kind of pass this education, then when you face the life, and you face that not only talent as a musician or capability to play well your instrument gives you an access to the world, right. but something else. Right. Your brain, your talent to interact, your talent to meet people, to introduce yourself. Right. Charisma. So, exactly, charisma. Because nowadays management that is used to be, I think, going 
to nowhere. Uh, there are more and more artists, musicians uh, who make their careers without any management. Yeah, and you know, so now time changing situation. Even in the movie industry, I I I have very good friend of mine, Gregory David Mayo. He's a talent agent, literary agent. He's telling me, Georgi, it's it's the business getting tougher and tougher. Yeah, like there is huge gap. There is just few people who work with the stars. And there is nothing right like it's it's well the world's changed in the sense that uh, and it's it's bad in many ways uh, <clears throat> but one of the good things is that you can have a direct relationship with your audience now you don't need the agent that's true you don't that's need true. The, the publishing company well, that, that's true, partly also sad because uh, we, you know, professional classical musicians always have this talk. So now we have YouTube and whoever who advertise well for himself can reach certain amount mm -hmm. of views on the YouTube, yeah. even with no kind of education, yeah. uh, proved by the audience better. You can have, you know, years and years of education, but if you don't, do not know how to reach uh, your target of audience, you're nowhere. Do you think education <clears throat> in, in music, especially in a place like the Russian Conservatory, you're talking about, the, is that what it's called? Yes, yes. Um, well, it has such tradition and such weight and, you know, this sort of, um, there's a very conservative mindset that comes with that because they're trying to conserve the past mm -hmm. and that's admirable right there's a lot of beauty in the past but does it take away um does it discourage creativity and like you're having a conflict where you're doing things that they haven't heard before and that's threatening in some ways is that a problem do you think or how well, did you get through it with without losing that you definitely uh discovered the right point it, it is like that yes so uh, the conservatory i think all conservatories worldwide especially in europe and the older countries uh, unfortunately in the end of 20th century reached that point that they still trying to you know be mostly based on what they conserved through the history, through the experience, and being not that open-minded in being to accept certain modern approaches to even the, uh, the instrument playing. So that was the part why I left uh, Russia, left my country. I, I was studying the third year of Moscow Conservatory. There are five, five years of education to complete it. And I did complete it, but on the third year, I discovered exactly what you're talking about. So that even this highest quality musical education doesn't give everything what you need nowadays. So it give you very good basis, but it doesn't teach you how to be a modern musician being capable to, you know, present uh, classical music into a new way that will be well understood not only by people of certain age, but also by young ones. Mm. And how to fill your concert hall with people of whole range, with different interests. So that's why I moved to Italy, to discover more things and to travel Europe to meet uh, professional musicians, street musicians, you know, classical musicians, 
uh, folk musicians, jazz, pop, rock. So I I played with everybody I could mm. and tried to learn from every style of music from everybody. If, if all, even now when I travel, if I see the street musician who is really good in his what he does, I just stay. I feel him. I try to talk to him. If there is a possibility, I try to invite him for. a coffee or tea and maybe mm. jam together mm. because sometimes it's better experience than go just you know buy expensive ticket and go yeah. to the big concert hall because i know what i'm gonna You've get there i've heard that all yeah. before you yeah. know and sometimes you see just real treasure on the street and that must have been very difficult for you to walk away in your third year at this very prestigious position i'm sure it's very hard to be accepted to that and to say oh, no I'm gonna go it was very challenging also because I still wanted to get the degree of Moscow Conservatory because it was not easy for me to get there to mm. come to Moscow you know it was kind of a dream and of course I didn't want just to throw it away so I for two years I was flying only in the monthly basis Rome Moscow Moscow Rome wow because I entered the Academia Nazionale di Santa Cecilia, another very conservative and very prestigious Italian academy. But the guy I studied with, his name is Giovanni Sollima, and I played a couple of his songs last night as well, right. who became not just my teacher, but also my mentor. So that guy, he is... He, He's another Jimi Hendrix on the cello, <laughs> I would say. Yeah. And he is the guy who opened my head and, and, and said, Georgi, you are on the right way. So just keep keep, uh, keep going. And were, keep you, going. were you making money playing at that point to pay, pay for all these flights? And um, I was lucky to find a good friends in Italy who hosted me. So I had no I uh, had no obligation to pay uh, for living there and having a car. Yes, I got a nice. very good patron, and uh, she is now eighty-six years old lady. We just celebrated uh, her you birthday. Her last yes, night. we just yeah. celebrated her yeah. birthday in um, in Palma de Mallorca, right. and she became part of my family because she became almost like my my second mother. Uh, when I came to Italy, well, by the age she's probably my grandmother, but um, it was hard, but. Doing this and also playing concerts and making money, of course, to still pay the flights because yeah. it's not it's not it's not cheap. Especially when you fly with a cello, you always need an extra seat for your cello. Ah, this is a problem. Double, right? Yes, it's you're double not price. You're putting in a check bag. Yeah. You you are not putting in a check bag. Did you get the cello in Italy, or you had it in this particular cello in Russia? Uh, well, this cello which I have now, I, f I, I found just five years ago. But before mm. that, I, w I used to travel with another one. Mm. Yeah, and you couldn't... I've seen electric cellos there. Yeah. I guess that's not... Uh, there, uh, you know, it's interesting because the difference between piano and cello is that pianists, they train to adjust to a new instrument every time because they tour... They cannot tour with you their own piano. piano right? There are only, I think, two pianists in the history who used to travel with their own piano. It was Van Kleiber and uh, Vladimir Horowitz. Yeah. But when they reach certain, you know, age and they, they could afford it to bring their own piano wherever they go. But with the cello, it's almost like, you know, when you go in a horse race. You... Jockey and the horse is a team, so mm. you cannot separate. Mm. And the cello playing is something the same. You cannot just switch from one cello. I can, 
I train myself to do that because not every time who invites you to play concert pay you full ticket and sometimes you just don't want to spend your money off out of your own pocket for that of course but when you uh especially when you grow when you train it's better to keep just one instrument because that allows you to find more sound qualities if we speak about the acoustic instrument it's not just about pitch speed or the show it's about the quality of the sound like the singer you know imagine that singer will switch to different body each day it's just impossible to mm. to build the voice mm. it's just not possible so if you had uh, if your cello was lost or something and last night you were playing another cello of a, a similar quality so mm -hmm. not a bad instrument just different mm -hmm. that you were unfamiliar with would the audience have noticed or is this something only you would have noticed uh, i don't think that our audience would notice that uh, because i repeat i train myself over years to do that and i used to play last time in the pro arts actually in september i played in the cello which uh one lady she unfortunately she didn't come last night to the show uh, she gave this cello to me for the show uh with the pianist so it was it was fine and everybody was happy but you know it's kind of i would feel that mm -hmm. and i would be stressed so instead of mm -hmm. kind of relaxing and giving energy to make show great you i would have to work double you mm -hmm. know kind yeah. of being yeah. careful oh i'm not sure if that gonna work right. because even with a cello you know, there is a, such mystery behind this instrument. I used to play in the big instruments, and one of them, uh, a Stradivarius cello, that the price was $15 million. So just touching that instrument, you think, oh my gosh. You've played it? I played that. And that, that particular cello ha has a little... Uh, well, it used to be a hole, but now it's, it's just a kind of a scar on the body of the cello, which Napoleon Bonaparte... The French emperor left on it because when certain French cellist Duport, who used to play the Stradivarius cello many years ago, came to play for the emperor Bonaparte, Napoleon, he asked, "Can I try that?" And of course, he said, without end pin, as you mentioned, and he he made the scar on the cello with a with a shoe, with a military you know boot for for the horses. Uh, so the, that the cello had this spur. special scar by Napoleon Bonaparte. So when you hold this instrument, you think, "Oh my gosh." Yeah. So such huge history behind that and of course you need to kind of find the relationship with this instrument yeah. so sometimes you need to spend a whole week before you and she or he you need to describe with she or he because they have a, it can go either way absolutely yeah, yeah. and then you need to make a friendship and say yeah. hey let's work together we have a show tonight <laughs> what do you think you know there's uh, talking about the he and the she and yeah. all that there's something very erotic about a woman playing the cello. Oh my gosh! Because yes. it's probably the only time you'll see a woman like in a black dress with her legs spread wide oh. open on stage. Well, yes, it, it's the same thing. Like you know, men uh, previously get mad, uh, get crazy seeing a woman on the horse. Yeah, yeah. You exactly. know, the same Anything. the same on cello because yeah. yeah, it's the only instrument that you have to you know spread your legs to play it. And, it, and it's uh, such a like. A, a sort of almost an anti-sexual environment absolutely so the cello by yeah. itself is so sexual because it was inspired by the female body i also made yeah, um, my my point. own uh yeah. absolutely look at that yeah I the curves the hourglass figure 
I made my own uh, kind of a little musical documentary about the cello and making cello. Uh, I made it in Sicily five years ago with my own music and filming trees and then wood, then the female body. I invited mm. a friend of mine, a beautiful uh, model, and we were just having fun. I've been painting her and making cello out of her body. Make her sing. Yeah, yeah. And... Uh, you know, and also the sound of the cello is so sensual. Sound of the cello is uh, very sensual. And if you think, if you hear closely, then you understand that it's really the probably the only instrument that is that much close to the human voice. Mm. When if I just try to play the lower notes, the lower strings and the very beautiful melody. Um really really may double the frequencies of the human male or female voice so it's it's very interesting and whereas a bass is so more clearly masculine yes, and maybe yes. a violin is more clearly exactly feminine. interesting exactly yeah. and uh, I, I get asked so many times um, by women's after my show that oh, Georgi I wish I could be on the part of your child yeah, yeah. <laughs> because it's such sensual even relationship between musician and the instrument on the stage yeah. and that's how actually uh, answering your previous question why i choose cello when i was 13 i entered this um, gnesian music school uh, and started to study the piano playing because i was more fluid uh, on, pia on the piano but once i came to the concert <clears throat> by a very famous Russian cellist, Alexander Knyazev. And he is a beautiful man, long hair, almost like rock musician, you know, good, beautiful body, fit on this a concert, a classical concert suit, holding cello and playing in such crazy way. And I looked at him, I said, wow, it is so beautiful, sensual happening on the stage. And also, I like the sound. Mm -hmm. So why don't I try this? Because it's something that vibrates more to my existence, mm -hmm. to my personality. There's a resonance. Absolutely. Yeah. So that's why I, that's how I felt in love with this instrument. Because that's interesting, though, because it's so <coughs> almost arbitrary. You know, like if you had seen someone playing a clarinet uh, amazingly well in a way that impressed people, do you think you would have picked up a clarinet? No, I don't think There's so. something in the instrument I don't itself. think so. It's something in, in the instrument, in the visual aspect. Uh, as, I, as I told, I wanted to become a painter, so the visual side mm. for me is so important. That's why mm. we were working together uh, with Tom, and with his visual stuff, because I think I better visualize music than just, you know, hear that. So the, the quality of the sound is not only the main important thing. The process of creating this sound is what inspires me more. So the process of playing on cello, it's already an art. You can mm. just you you can be completely uh, how you say in English yeah. tough, but watching cellist playing cello is already a, a, a art movement. Yeah. You know? what, what you were saying earlier about your relationship with the cello is that true also with the bow? Are bows very individual, or can you sw swap them out? Bows are less individual, but it's still it's still a very important tool that uh, allow you to create all those crazy tricks that you mentioned. So is yours particularly tight? My bow, uh, 
you know, you it's it's a life experience. You need to pass through many instruments to choose right one that's you and she fit together. It's almost like, you know, relationship. Mm. And with the bow, the same. You need to find this tool. There are so many bows. It doesn't matter how what the price of it. I, I tried one bow, very old bow. Uh, the price was like $200,000. It was made by a very French uh, tourt, a very, fra- a very famous French maker in the 19th century. But in my hands, this bow didn't sound at all. Mm. Then I can pick whatever 50 bucks bow and can be, wow, it's, mm. it's good. That's what I need. So this particular bow, which I play, I, I, I found it in, in Brazil, in the province of Pernambuco, and, and all the bows, modern bows, they use only Brazilian wood from Pernambuco province. Mm. And that's why it was much cheaper than buying the same bow in France, you know? Right. But this bow really, really fits. So it's almost like, you know, you cannot switch the same dress from different body right so dress should fit to your particular body so in this way probably bow should fit to your particular cello right because your style of course yes you you play so so many like i don't know how to say it's like you were playing uh individual strings very much not even you were doing the whatever the motion the sawing the chords and all that but there's a lot of very tight delicate like almost like uh you know like eric clapton mm-hmm. finger work very mm-hmm. individual notes very clean yes definitely you know it, the bow is your pronunciation yeah so in terms to pronounce to play melody you can with almost with every you can play just with a piece of wood it's it's uh, the string still will vibrate mm-hmm. but to make those particular effects and those particular um separate notes you need to have a f- certain quality bow and it should be tied in a certain way and of course you need to know how to use this bow so it's 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 a life experience can you play a cello the way um an upright bass player plays with plucking strings yes, and slapping yes, yes. so you can play without a sure, bow sure sure uh. so you uh, we basically use all the techniques so like chopping and you know, uh, this ba- bass playing of course cello would not sound exactly as a bass because the strings are just not they are thinner so right. Right. and the distance between the fingerboard and the and the string should be a certain way to make it sound like a double bass uh, but this technique still of course absolutely possible in the right. cello as well do you play a lot of chamber music I do, I do. I have, I have a duo with Italian pianist Jacopo Giacopuzzi, and actually, my first trip to Maui was with in duo with Jacopo. We played a couple of concerts here in Maui, mm. only fully classical programs. So it was three Russian sonatas, Rachmaninoff, Shostakovich, and Prokofiev, and people loved it. Yeah, yeah. It it occurs to me that there is a bit of a tradition of uh, string quartets playing unconventionally. Uh, I can't remember the name, but there was a very famous string quartet that plays jazz pieces and just sort mm. of uh, is very creative and well, the, the, radical. I, I can tell you the story about one of the members of the most po- probably popular in the past uh, American jazz quartets. Uh, the title is the Turtle Island Jazz Quartet mm. from, I guess, they're from San Francisco. And um, the previous member of this quartet, the, um, uh, uh, oh gosh... I'm I'm so bad with names, so whenever you ask me names, it's so hard for me to. Uh, Mark Summer, mm. 
Mark Summer, the cellist from Bay Area, and um, also a composer. He wrote several tunes, and one of them is so famous called Julio. And uh, yeah, Mark told me about a lot about the techniques, how to play in the particularly the jazz in a string quartet, because it's totally different, different approach to the music. It's it's nothing to do with classical. Like yeah. uh, to jam with the high quality jazz musicians, it's not enough to be just a good classical right. instrumental player. You need to learn the craft of jazz music because it's a completely different world. Is there a, a place? It maybe this is what we're talking about here, where you get good enough at the instrument that now you, how do I say this? It's, it's like you climb a mountain, you're going up, 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 and then when you're coming down, you, it's a totally different set of muscles that you use coming mm -hmm. down the mountain, right? I imagine there's you use these muscles to learn to get so good at an instrument that you can then relax those muscles, and now the challenge is to stop thinking. It is very interesting uh, question. Thank you for that. Not that often you see people understanding this difference. But yes, and um, that's why when I teach young musicians, and not only musicians, I, I got a couple of lessons with the singers this time in Moscow, and I hear often them asking me is it is it important to you know kind of leave the concert experience during your rehearsal or workout at at home so kind of play in the same way using all the power of the muscles you know techniques and emotions in the rehearsal or why don't you just keep this energy for the stage you go on the stage and you explore no it's, never gonna work like that it, you know the, like the emotions your uh, physical and mental emotions on stage when you perform is also almost like a muscle so you need to train that so when you prepare for the concert or competition or whatever in even recording so you train the way to hit this you know the top many times so then when you finally get to this top and you go down and you don't need to use any more this this power muscles but you feel completely relaxed and sure that you know how to do that so now when you practice for the concert for the big concert it's really important to project and to uh leave this environment which gonna happen with you during the live show in a more extreme way you know, sometimes uh, it's it's probably not a good example, but when I was a student, I loved to experiment uh, on the possibilities of my body. You know, growing in Russia, we had no any kind of, you know, marijuana, all this stuff that you can find in, in, in California. But I, uh, as a student, I loved the experience to see and understand how my brain and my muscles work with alcohol, for example. So I used to try some alcohol before going on stage and watching how this experience can affect my physical abilities and my mental abilities. Mm -hmm. Of course, under some, you know, percentage of alcohol in your blood, you're not 100% ready to do what you have to do. But it's interesting because even with the brain work, you can kind of get there if you know how to do that. You know, it's, it's, yeah. it's almost not possible to do the same in sports because 
you know, you just cannot do that in sports. But in music, it's mostly brain work than physical work. So mm. sometimes you can allow your muscles work in a certain way if you know how to how to give them this signal to work. To to relax. Like, would you take like a shot of vodka and go on stage and be a little more relaxed, a little less inhibited? No, what happens, so if you get the shot of vodka and then whatever, and after one minute or two minutes when alcohol gets in your blood, you go on stage, of course, you potentially cannot play the same speed and the same articulation, very difficult piece as you... Just the hand-eye coordination. Of, yes, just speed. coordination doesn't yeah. work the same way. But what you do in this way, you try to find the way to do that in different way to kind of maybe slow down to kind of you know it's always trick that's why i said that it is always interesting experience to work with magicians because performing it's always a trick mm. so it depends on you if public would like it or not mm. so even if you play it slightly slower in a different way but if you know how to give this message to the public they still will enjoy that yeah and they the still emotion. won't be able to notice that you're not 100 percent right. of your capability right, right. now you know right. that's why i i, I love to uh, work and uh, <clears throat> spend times and just talking with great musicians such as tommy Emanuel, the uh, australian guitar player i mentioned before because tommy he's world famous one band showman so his show is just him on stage with his fingerstyle guitar, acoustic guitar. No pedals, no loops, no backup, nothing. Mm. Just one person, three hours show. When he goes on tour, it's daily concerts all over the world for sometimes for four or six months nonstop. He's now... 60 something and he's still doing that so when i met him for the first time in moscow many years ago i asked tommy how you do that i've been on your concert like five days ago you played this small bar for like 100 people and i've been in your concert tonight you played in the huge uh, uh, huge concert stage for three thousand people it was exactly the same energy yeah you like you give all of you to doesn't matter how much money you get from the show. Yeah. He said, Georgi, yes, of course, it's important for me because even if there is just one person that can be amazed by what I do, I have to do that. Mm. doesn't matter how much I get paid. It's my job, you know. Yeah. I go on stage and I give all I can. And my second question was, how you do that? Because you spend energy every day where you get time and, you know, energy for recovery. Because as we had this chess game this morning and somebody mentioned, oh, like the chess players lose so many calories during the chess chess game. And I said, yes, musicians also. We lose so many calories during the concert. Mm. And scientists, they did research that's almost like a boxer during mm. the match. But boxer mm. fights maximum once in yeah. three months yeah. and you have concerts almost on a daily basis yeah. so then you you have to find certain techniques for the recovery you have to know how to rest how to eat the first thing tommy said Gyogi, if you want to be a good musician eat good food mm. because it's the first thing that gives you energy to explore 
uh, explode on the stage uh, right. during, the, during the show. Right. You were when you were talking about how uh, you know using alcohol or whatever that you might have to slow down, and you find a different way, a different path to communicate the mm-hmm. same material. I was thinking about how it's always confused me that so many great jazz musicians were heroin addicts Mm -hmm. because heroin is so slow Mm -hmm. and it makes everything go slower and low energy. And, Mm -hmm. you know, Ornette Coleman, you know, Mm -hmm. was so high energy, but it, it, or, or not just jazz, but uh, Mm -hmm. Keith Richards Mm -hmm. and, you know, Eric Clapton, Mm -hmm. like Mm -hmm. all these, but, I guess that's part of it, maybe, that it forces you into a creativity. Well, um, I'm not agree with that. I'm, um, you know, I'm very much against uh, of everything, and it was absolutely not the uh, propaganda of the alcohol, oh, what, no, what no, I mentioned. No. Uh, I tried a uh, uh, lot of stuff when I came to United States, uh, where almost everything is, you know, you can find this stuff. And I, I spoke with many quite big names in the art industry about marijuana and how, for example, marijuana affects your brain activity. And a lot of people still think that it gives you certain creativity to write better song or whatever. No, it's not. So you just feel like that. Of course, it slows you down. Of course, it gives you more relaxation. So if you're stressed, uh, for, I don't know, to go on stage because some people have this constant fear. It's almost became like impossible for them to go on stage yeah. with a normal state of mind. Mm. But I think it's better to maybe change approach to, to become a studio record musician mm. than, than use any kind of mm. drug for go, getting on stage. So, no, unfortunately, drugs doesn't help you to be to be a better musician. Of course, they can affect the quality of the music that you play or you compose. Yeah. Maybe that's why you write. So uh, you know, the jazz or blues is, has this certain relaxing flair on it, and you yeah. know, of co- a lot of reggae music is all about marijuana. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, yeah no doubt. Um, do you want to do? Is this a good time to play something? Yeah, sure. Yeah, sure. Uh, yeah, whatever you like. I, I, um, I always think about. Have you ever played the, any of the late Beethoven quartets? Oh, I love Beethoven. Oh, yeah, man. So the, maybe, yeah, um, we do maybe it's here? it's yeah, it's not the good idea to play the quartet music on the solo no, cello. No, no. But what I could or potentially Hendrix. do. Um, let me just show you different uh, different aspects of the cello. That I played a tune called Folia Orthodox. I tell briefly what it's about. So I composed this song for my Carnegie Hall debut in 2018, which was on uh, February 2nd. And this particular song was commissioned to me by the dancing company in New York. And, uh, well, there are supposed to be uh, several musicians on stage, but I did also arrangement for just cello solo. So it's called Folia Orthodox because it comes from my roots of Orthodox culture. And the Folia is the most antique European tune which you can find almost in every European country from Italy to the northern, whatever, to the Great Britain. And almost people 
community from all countries think that this tune comes from their roots. For example, if you go to Spain, people say it's Spanish tune. If you go to France, they think whatever. So when I started to travel Europe, I found that we Russians also have the same tune. I'll give you a little example of the very old um, uh, French folia by French composer Marin Marais. It sounds like that. So can I videotape you? Sure. So the melody and the chord progression of this song is like that. And the interesting thing that uh, this particular tune with exactly the same melody, exactly the same chord progression, exists in Europe and different countries starting from dark ages, from 14th, 15th century up to nowadays. And almost every great composer from Vivaldi to Sergei Rachmaninoff wrote a few pieces dedicated to this tune. So when I came to Europe and get to know all these countries and uh, spoke with many musicians who tried to say that it comes from their country. I said, no, guys, I think it comes from somewhere deeper. And I did my research when I, well, I still was studying Moscow Conservatory. So probably my theory that it comes from the Byzantine Empire, which doesn't exist anymore. It's, it's you know, it's, it was one of the Roman Empire provinces founded in the 300s after Christ and uh, in the, in the, exactly in the, uh, somewhere in the 14, late 14th, 15th century collapsed and didn't, doesn't exist anymore. But I think the musical roots of Byzantine Empire, and we know that Byzantine Empire had a very good musical education and a very rich musical culture. So maybe that's why it spread, because Byzantine Empire used to take almost all parts of the uh, modern uh, Southern Europe and uh, modern Russia as well. So I wrote my tune, which uh, based on the same idea uh, of the folia, like theme and variations, but I took the very beginning of the John Williams song from the Indiana Jones because it was commissioned by the, this dancing company. They said, Georgi, could you create something that would tell both about your Russian roots and something that could also relate to American culture? I said, OK, I'm going to do that. So I took that very beginning of the John Williams song and uh, mix it together with a very old Russian Orthodox chorale, which I used to sing in the Russian Orthodox uh, church, and then wrote uh, variations on top of it. How much time do we have for, for this music? As much as, as much. Okay, yeah. good, good.
Here comes the first variation of very baroque style. Thank you. Oh man, it's I can't tell you what an honor it is to sit in a room with you while you do that. That's it feels almost intrusive like like you're 
in a very private moment. You know, um, yes, it is. Um, I spent some time with uh, Dennis Gassner talking about his yoga experience. He said he almost cannot practice his yoga alone by himself so he always needs to go to the room to feel other pe people to feel the community mm. that's why i do believe that the live concert experience will never end so will last forever because you cannot experience the same energy on the uh, on through the recording even if it's well done recording if, if it's from the live concert instead of going to the live concert and seeing a musician playing live and especially when you get to the closed room so you have this energy that goes straight to you so i i love this experience yeah. by myself and i get inspired by more by people sitting in the room because it, this energy it goes back so you give it but then it go comes back to you that's also was one of answers by tommy when um, I asked him how he does such many concerts and he gives everything, he said, you know, Georgi, if you will give this truly with open heart, you will start to feel that you get back mm -hmm. from the people. Yeah. So, so it's kind of a circulation of energy. So if you are open enough to give everything without, with no limits, then you will get from them much better more and better quality energy than yeah. yeah there's a buddhist expression uh what what isn't given away is lost forever exactly the best way to preserve something is to give it mm -hmm. and it was, won't be lost my last question uh for you because uh, we have yes. things to do here but um you know I, I have a friend who's a very very good musician and since a child and a prodigy and one time we were talking about music, and and I I don't play any instruments, um, but I I feel music very deeply. Uh, the late Beethoven quartets, for example, mm. I, it's my favorite. I, as well. I've listened to them many, many, many times. Beethoven, my biggest inspiration, my favorite composer. Really, because yeah. the yeah. energy, the way how he gives energy through his music is just something incredible. I used to be very into Mahler, uh, you know, Chopin, uh, mm -hmm. big. F but anyway, it, it, the point is, I feel it um, to the point of tears sometimes. Mm -hmm. And I was speaking with him about it, and he said he never felt that. Because he said, for example, this thing that makes you feel nostalgia. Well, that's D minor. D minor always has that effect on people. For me, it's like, like you were saying, a magic trick. It's like, oh, if I play this chord, you know, diminish to this and blah, 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 it'll, it'll elicit this emotional response. And for him, the emotion was lost because he knows the mechanism. But when I listen to Chopin or Beethoven, I, I feel like they must be feeling it. It, with Mozart, maybe not so much, and or Liszt. Like, there's some composers where I feel like they're doing a trick, and there are others where I feel like they're transmitting an emotion. Um, yes, of course. Uh, I think Mozart, uh, he started to deeply feel in his requiem, definitely. Mm. When you know, when we all face a tragedy, drama, or death. Chopin lived most of his professional life knowing that he is going to die a pretty young man. 
because mm, yeah, it tuberculosis. And he could so, never go home. Exactly. And the last piece written by um, Franz Schubert, when he got syphilis and he was dying, and he wrote his last opus, um, uh, String Quintet, and I played this piece so many times, and I always, I'm playing Get Into Tears in the last movement, uh, knowing that he's going to die, and he died two months after he finished this opus. But still, in this music, there is so much beauty, not just hope, but beauty of existence and love to life and everything. So uh, I think, of course, there is different approach on how composer write music and there is different approach how listener listens to it so if you are deep enough and uh, as you said open to get into tears by the music um, that means that you understand something more than just you know just sounds and music is the most um, abstractive art because it doesn't tell you anything if there is no words it just uh, in certain way put together uh, sound uh, through the melody, rhythm, and harmony and mix in different way. But the composer still can give a message just through the sounds. And by the way, Leonardo da Vinci uh, was working in his um, uh, early uh, life on creating kind of musical enigma, how to express the language through the sounds. He was doing some uh, parallels between Italian language. In Italian, you have a lot of notes. For example, the phrase amore mi fa mirare, like love inspires me. Uh, you can find re mi fa re, that is uh, notes. Uh. And he, Leonardo da Vinci was writing music uh, because he used to be a great uh, improviser on the lute and the instrument. He was trying to describe the words through the music. So it, it happens more than 500 years ago because this year we kind of celebrated 500 after the Leonardo da Vinci death. death. So uh, through the centuries, through the ages, people tried to find the way how to describe feelings through the music. That's why uh, if you know you're in a certain way like sad or romantic, what can inspire you more? Just music, good music. You go uh, either at live concert or you put any recording and you, you get into this mood. So it's something that brings you to the mood without any, you know, even wine or whatever. You just listen to the sounds. As it goes through your body, it's uh, touched certain frequencies in your body because if you mentioned the Zen, so you know that each of everybody has owns frequency so we need to be tuned when we're out of tune we can feel you know sad or even uh, in health wise not good but if we're well tuned everything works in harmony and i think mu music is something that can tune you right in the correct harmony that's why you know uh, in science uh, classical music used so many times for proving certain things like the you know the the water crystallizes mm. in a uh, more perfect forms during the music uh, with the frequencies of the classical music you know it's 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 science it's proved like so the, the greens grows faster if yeah. you put in the farms just mozart and cows gives more milk and uh chickens give more eggs yeah. if you just put in the speakers loud classical music and that, that that's proved by yeah. science you know so there is some mystery that you know 
and the mystery of how human beings get to this knowledge, knowing how to put sounds together in the way that it will affect, you know, other creatures to to feel better, to feel better. I interviewed an ethnomusicologist on this podcast once, and we were talking mm-hmm. about how the music from different parts of the world mimics the sounds at night in that part of the world. So there are animals in Africa that make like a thumping kind of sound. And his theory was that that's why one of the reasons African music is very rhythmic and drumming. And then in India, there are different, I don't, I don't remember exactly, but no. his idea was that the music, human music comes out of the natural sounds absolutely, of the Absolutely, absolutely. People started in the, the you know, prehistorical times, people started to create music trying to imitate sounds of animals, uh, weather, birds, yeah. weather. That's why you know e- even in Hawaii, if you look the dances by the you know the the the, the, the aborigines of uh, Hawaii, mm-hmm. so you you see dances of all countries is imitation of birds mostly mm, dancing, yeah, yeah. colorful birds, and of course music in Africa is imitation of you know humming or um, uh, running. Uh, you know, animals. Yeah. That's why it's the rhythmical. Herds, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, there, there, is, there is always very deep and very straight link between music and the nature. Yeah. Thank you for doing Thank this. Thank you man. so much. I hope Thank to you see so much, you Chris. And yes. Many times. We'll definitely see each other somewhere. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Okay, Mom, uh, tell people what they can order from the garage. Okay, in our cottage garage, we have. Lots and lots of T-shirts. Sex at Dawn, Civilized to Death, Vanthropology, Tangentially Speaking, Paleo Modern, and Talking Out of My Ass. (laughs) She didn't like saying that last one. Then we now have some new things added. We've got beer cozies. Or koozies, or whatever they're called. Oh, civilized to death design. They're all civilized That's right. to death. We have stickers and car decals, right? Yes. Okay, there you have it. That's Julie, my mom. He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're going to die one day. For example, I could kiss you just because I want to. What's the difference if you turn away? I'm gonna die one day. Why do you waste your time thinking about your reputation? Trying to meet an expectation, wondering what they're gonna say. Doesn't ask for much A little music and a soft touch Why don't you let it out to play Your heart is in a birdcage Singing in your chest You wanna shut it up but give it a rest You're gonna die one day Why do we waste our time Thinking about a reputation Running from a conference
to the ground. 